Quest Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. Today, uh, we're going to continue our series called Staying Engaged, where we're looking at uh, what the Bible says about healthy relationships, particularly through the lens of how it teaches about the closest relationship of all, marriage. And uh, we're gleaning from the Bible and some practical wisdom that is very consistent with that. Today, we're going to talk about communication. How do we communicate well? How do we fight fair? And uh, as we've been doing the last couple of weeks, we want to start with a little bit of humor first. So enjoy this clip by comedian Tim Hawkins. I'm just so blessed, man. I just love, I, I love being married. I've been married for 17 years, like I said. Has anybody here been married for a, like less than a year? Any newly married people? Any newly married? How long have you been married? How many? Two months. Dude. <laughs> Welcome to the jungle. We got fun and games. We got Where do we go now? (laughs) Two months, that's awesome. See, we married two months. See, marriage is a roller coaster. Two months, you're just on that first hill. It's pretty easy. You got your teddy bear and your big cup of Coke. (laughs) This ain't so bad, is it, sugar booger? (laughs) it's coming rachel ray it's coming like a train buckle up patootie (laughs) you see marriage changes it's still good it just changes it's good it just changes like i don't know dude you may get up early and go to work early your wife's you know still sleeping in your shirts she's the snuggle She's like, please don't go. Please just stay. Just stay. Please don't go. Please stay. Stay. Oh! A few years later, it's trash day. Let the dog out. All right, man. Turn off the light. You're not going to wear that, are you? What not to wear poster boy walking out the door. When you're first married, you share food at restaurants, you know? Get a piece of cake. Can I have a piece just to buy? Sure, I know. Sure. Married 17 years, you throw an elbow every once in a while. Says, oh, no, no. Well, you see, I got che- cheesecake because I wanted cheesecake. But you didn't want cheesecake a minute and a half ago. But now you want cheesecake. See, that's frustrating. Because I show, I said, you want cheese? You said, no, not a I See, I got a cheesecake hole right here in my stomach. And a half a piece is not going to do it. You're first married, you probably watch each other sleep all the time, it's just a kiss. It's like, look at him. Oh my god. It's just, I'm gonna oh, oh, Put on Facebook, yeah, Facebook. <laughs> I woke up from a nap the other day. My wife was just standing there staring at me like, oh. like what's wrong? She goes, I don't remember marrying that face. Wow. <laughs> you want a sandwich, Chewbacca? <laughs> What happened to your nose, Voldemort? Hey, Parker! 
Amen. Gosh, we need to laugh, don't we? I mean, marriage is not an easy adventure. I mean, it is a, a jungle. I love it. Um, so let's briefly revisit what is one of the purposes of marriage. It stems from the truth that God has a vision for each of us. In Philippians 1.6, Paul talks about the good work that God is doing in believers that will be completed when Jesus comes back. So that's when we'll become our true selves, the persons that God created us to be. We'll be free from flaws, imperfections, from weaknesses, from sin. But right now we are in a process, and God is designed for us to grow and change. So in all of our relationships, not just in our marriage, we're wanting to see what is that vision, what's that true self that God has for each person, and how do we be a part of his transforming process and work in their lives. So it's like a mountain on a cloudy day. Mount Rainier is one of our favorite places on earth to go. And so the first time we went there, it was a cloudy, really foggy day. And, the, you know, you couldn't see anything past like 20 feet. And right where all the, the cloud was, they promised us that there was a 14 thumbs, some foot volcano. But, I mean, I didn't see it. I couldn't see it. I couldn't believe it. But then as the day went on, the clouds started to dissipate, and you were able to see an incredible mountain peak. And that's what it's like in our process with one another, is that we get glimpses of what God has called us to be, that potential, the, the true picture, the true self that he wants us to be. But we get so covered up in clouds with all our flaws and our imperfections that we don't, um, it's hard to see that in ourselves and it's hard to see that in each other. So in a marriage, we're wanting to be able to get out there and point out where we see those glimpses and cheer them on. Be able to say, I see who God is making you to be, and it's awesome, and I want to be a part of that process. Um, and so that, that leads to, and marriage is one of our most important things to realize, is that marriage needs to focus on all of us growing. The whole idea of like, gosh, if you just loved me, you would accept me for who I am and what I am. We'll talk, or Ross will talk about acceptance. That's just not, not true. What, healthy marriages require us to grow and to change. And by the way that we love each other, sacrifice, challenge each other, we're going to cooperate with that transforming process that God has. So how good are you at looking at those glimpses of that true self, that potential in your spouse? And how well do you cooperate with God's process of transforming them? We've been talking about this process of healthy marriages being staying engaged. The reality is healthy only comes if we don't disengage and we stay engaged. We've been talking about that through uh, spelling it out in terms of some commitments we each need to make to have a healthy marriage. The first commitment we made was was the, the, to look at our own self, to look at our own self-centeredness, our own sin as a greater problem than the wounding that our bad behavior maybe of our spouse or insensitive behavior of our spouse creates in us because when we focus only on the wounds, None of us ever heal. When we learn to focus on ourselves, then we can heal and our marriage can heal as well. And the second commitment we talked about was putting God at the center of our relationship, which I know sounds really cliche, but it really means that we allow him to be the one who meets the needs for security and significance in our life and not look to our spouse so much for that. They can add to those feelings, but they're not the ones who give us that. And it allows us to find this place of freedom to then align ourselves with God's agenda for restoring our spouse to the beautiful perfection that he intended for them when he created them. Our third commitment that we're going to talk about today and we're going to talk about it next week is, is simply put this way. It's a commitment to turn toward one another. 
flourishing, colorful, healthy relationships actively turn toward each other, especially when we don't want to, especially when it's difficult. Now, we're going to focus on that today, especially in regard to how we, when our old self comes out and when we're not so fun to be around and when we're getting into conflict, what does that bring to us? How do we have conflicts in a healthy way? How do we have a relationship where we, even in the middle of, in the midst of conflict, can remember the clouds are there and we can remember the picture that's there and we can gain strength in our relationship rather than stalling out in repetitive arguments that go nowhere? Our core passage that we've been dealing with each week continues to shed light on this, so we're going to read it again in Ephesians 5, and beginning in verse 25, where it says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their own body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. So what we get to see in this passage is this. How Christ relates to us, his church, his body. And, uh, and we get to see that he says that we're supposed to relate to each other in marriage in the exact same way. That Jesus loves his church and he cleanses her. He does actions to bring change, to bring healing, to bring growth. And with the goal of presenting her or your spouse one day with perfection before God himself. We're to love each other in the same way. And it also says that husbands and wives are one body. We're not two. We're not separate. And therefore, why would we ever reject or why would we ever disdain part of our own body? But we would care for it. We would learn to feed. We would learn to care for our spouse. Marriage evolves around this idea of helping each other discover and be the true best self that you are, that God created you to be. Now, a lot of people when they talk about marriage also use the, the uh, analogy of the furnace, the fact that we're metal ore and we're made up of this combination of dross and this beautiful pure metal. And it takes the furnace, it takes heat, it takes conflict and demands for change for us to ever become that beautiful person that we were originally created to be. Conflict is not bad. It's healthy. It's necessary to be a part of any good relationship. So getting to that metaphor of the body, and we're supposed to be involved in cleansing one another, nourishing, feeding, and caring. But what does it look like when you think about cleaning your body? I don't know. That's pretty personal, pretty private. You know, you shower. You know, you want to do all those things. You eliminate. Um, you wipe. You know, I want, was, you know your spouse is going to see things that others will not see. They even take part in helping in that cleaning. Marriage brings you into the closest contact with anyone else in your life. You see each other close up. You are forced to deal with those flaws and sins of each other. What kind of person are you? What flaws will your spouse see? Do you tend to be proud, opinionated, selfish, anxious, fearful, demanding? Do you pout when you don't get your way? Are you harsh? Are you unkind? How about undisciplined? Can you be unreliable, disorganized? Are you a perfectionist? Are you judgmental? Are you irritable and lose your temper easily? Are you overly responsible for others? Are you highly independent? Maybe you are always wanting people to like you. 
Are you materialistic or stingy? You know, you can hide some of those flaws from even, it's hard, but you can hide them from your family, your parents, your siblings, even your roommates and friends. And they can get glimpses of those issues. But if they give you a concern, you can dismiss it because you're like, well, you don't really know who I am. And while issues like those can be irritating for your friends and family, they may not cause really big problems. But in marriage, those same issues can create huge problems. Like if you are one that doesn't want to deal with conflict and you avoid it, that's your tendency, it can destroy your marriage. And no one is more hurt by your flaws than your spouse. I like the analogy that Tim Keller gave when he described marriage as a bridge. So imagine an old bridge over a stream and there are structural defects in this bridge and with very close inspection, you wouldn't be able to see those frail, those, um, what do you call them? Those, uh, cracks, hairlines, fractures in them. Yeah. But if you have on that same bridge, a 10 ton Mack truck come and stand on it, what's going to happen? The pressure and the weight of that truck is going to reveal those flaws. And that's what marriage is. It's not the person. Like Ross is calling me a 10 ton truck. Um, it's, it's the marriage. You would never do that. No, I was saying that guys should never use that illustration. Yeah. Um, so, but if you put a 10 ton truck on a bridge, you're going to see the flaws. And that's what we have to be willing to be saying. That that's what marriage is about of looking at those hairline fr- fractures and to be able to see all those flaws because the truck, it did not create those weaknesses, right? Your spouse doesn't make you blow up. But it's the, it's just marriage in itself, the way it's designed to be, exposes those flaws in within us. And so marriage has that truth to show, uh, give us a realistic, often unflattering look at ourselves. And it's saying, look at it. You know, if we are blind though, and we don't want to look at our issues, we want to stay in denial, those flaws will enslave us. Cause, and marriage gives us the ability to see them and it can bring hope. It just doesn't feel like that at 11 o'clock at night when you're really upset with your spouse because you've done something wrong, right? Right. Okay. Yeah. Right. Ready. Mm-hmm. James, uh, Jesus' brother, uh, writes in James 4 about conflict, and he says this. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? He asks us a question. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend it on, uh, spend what you get on your pleasures. And honestly, when it comes to conflict and communication, I have to look at this and reading this, even this last week, I go, that, that is so true. When Wendy and I have unhealthy conflict that goes bad, it has nothing to do with the fact that we don't know the communication skills. We both teach the communication skills. We know the communication skills. It has everything to do. Most of the conflict in our life is not so much communication skill oriented. It really is the fact of what's going on internally in us. And do we understand that? It's, it's really us not fully living out commitment one and two, looking at, looking at our own self-centeredness and, and what needs are not being met and understanding what's driving us internally and, and then not being able to be because of that and not being able to be God centered in our relationship and looking at what God wants to do. Instead, I'm having to prove and protect myself. It really has very little to do a lot of times with the communication. Last week, Wendy also mentioned a guy named John Gottman, who's considered by many to be the nation's foremost leader on studying marriages. He's studied marriages for over 40 years, and 
he actually was able to, uh, through these studies, predict very reliably uh, couples that will divorce and couples that will remain married. And he did this simply based upon putting them in an environment where they argued and he listened to them argue. And it only took him a few minutes of listening to each one of these couples to argue to have an outrageously high accuracy in the ability to predict whether they would last or not as a couple. And he identified out of this uh, four negative traits. He likes to call them the four horsemen of marriage apocalypse. And I'm sure that very few couples want to go to dinner with this couple because they don't want to be told in 15 minutes whether their marriage is no. Door, uh, anyway, he said the door uh, opened, especially when we open the door to a conversation with a negative harsh start, that these four horsemen are really easy to trot right into the middle of our heart, of our marriage. And uh, they usually come in, he said, in a certain order. And his order he described, we're going to go through each one of them individually, is criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and stonewalling. And he says when these four are all present, the likelihood of divorce is very high. When just one or two of them are present, it's not quite as high. But when all four are present, the likelihood is very high. And these are things we have to watch our heart for. The first one, criticism. Isn't it so easy to fall, easy to fall into that? Gottman actually distinguishes between criticism and complaints. Now, complaints to me when I read that is just no different than criticism. So I'm just going to change complaints to we all have issues, Right? Everybody, every one of us has issues. So we're going to compare criticism and the fact that we all have issues. And I have issues. We're going to have issues in our marriage. We're all going to have issues. And the problem arises in those issues when we turn those issues into criticisms. And he defines criticism this way. He says, healthy communication focuses on specific behavior when we have issues. But criticism attacks the character of the person. So it's perfectly appropriate for somebody in a marriage to say the following, to say, you should have told me earlier that you were too tired to make love. I'm disappointed and I feel embarrassed. But what's not appropriate to say is to add criticism to that and say it this way. Why are you so selfish? It's really nasty of you to lead me on and to tease me and then not tell me earlier that you were too tired, right? There's a difference in the tone of those two statements. See, even if... The person is selfish. Even if that's true, we don't need to label that. In fact, we would be more appropriate to love like the Bible teaches us to love. In 1 Corinthians it says, love believes all things. Now, that doesn't mean love is gullible in that sense of believing all things. But love believes all things in the fact that it constantly focuses its attention and believing the radiant beautiful picture that your spouse could be in the future. It's, it's, it's that picture of Mount Rainier without the clouds that you get to glimpse every now and then, that I constantly believe in that. And actually, even if they are selfish, that's the best way to approach them because the Bible says that the best way to lead someone to repentance, the way God primarily does it with us, bringing us to repentance in our sin, is through what? Kindness. Romans 2.4. It's through kindness. So constantly calling out that good in them, being kind in that kind of communication is actually something that leads, even if it's sin, to repentance. The second uh, one that often follows criticism is contempt. And uh, an example of contempt is is sarcasm or cynicism or name-calling, calling them stupid or putting them down, eye-rolling, sneering, mockery, hostile humor. And Gottman says that contempt is the, is the worst one of all four of these horsemen of the marriage apocalypse because, because contempt communicates 
you are disgusted with your spouse. It communicates disgust. And all it does is cause the conflict to escalate. It becomes nearly impossible to solve the problem when when the other person feels like you're disgusted with them. And typically when we get into contempt, the next thing easily follows if it hasn't already followed in our marriage. And that is the third horseman, which is defensiveness. And, and, And the problem is that defensiveness never solves the problem. I mean, defensiveness is really our way of blaming our partner, saying, in effect, you're the problem and not me. It's, it's, it's violating that commitment, that first commitment. It's saying, I'm going to protect myself as a priority instead of loving you as a priority. And as a result, the problem never gets resolved doesn't even have a chance to get resolved when we're defensive and the conflict escalates. And, and when that's gone on long enough, the fourth horseman usually shows up, which is simply uh, it's our turning away from our spouse. Uh, Gottman calls it stonewalling. Um, stonewalling is a way that we avoid the intensity of feelings that we have in a conflict. Those, those feelings that overwhelm us about what it says about us and what it says about our marriage and all those strong, intense emotions that come up in conflict. It's our way of avoiding those. And we ignore our spouse on a particular issue, maybe. We just refuse to talk about this one set of, this one issue, or maybe it's a set of issues, or maybe it gets bad enough that it's the point where we, we just, we just try not to spend more time around them than we need to, and it becomes more of a general way of stonewalling. A comment is made about an issue. We want to talk about something, and, and our spouse just doesn't respond doesn't respond, doesn't turn towards us with any kind of response, just doesn't respond or, or deflects it to another topic or, or worst case scenario, just walks out of the room and avoids it, which makes our spouse even angry. And this behavior tends to enter marriages the longer they're together. It takes a while for the negativity of these three, first three horsemen to build up to the point where we think that stonewalling is an understandable solution. We're just going to avoid this because it's too painful, so we're just not going to deal with it. Each of these four horsemen can predict divorce, but when they're typically found together is when the problems are really there. So I want to just take a moment right now, and I want to pause, and I want each of you just to think for a second. What horsemen do you see present in your marriage around certain issues or in a relationship with a boss or a friend? What horsemen are in your life? And Ross said he doesn't expect me to share that right now. What I have. So I'll, I'll tell you about it later. Okay, so anyway. Um, we're not born knowing how to have a happy marriage. And I know if you have not learned how to have a loving relationship from your parents, you know, you're left to your own devices, your own guidance. But even if we've had happy and health, relatively healthy parents, they're still flawed. And because they're flawed, we still have a lot to learn. So just to reemphasize what we've already talked about, true or false, conflict and anger are signs that your relationship is failing. The answer would be false, right? Good job. Because marriages are not dysfunctional when there's conflict. We want our kids to know that too. We want them to know that um, of, it's the avoidance of conflict that is going to be concerning of whether you're going to head to divorce or not. Because marriage is going to have ups and downs. You can't be under the same roof with anybody and not have some disagreements. And so depending upon the ages of our kids too, we also want them to see how do you do, how do you deal with conflict? And if you've had a bad day and you've dealt with it really poorly that they get to see a lessons of repentance and how people forgive and move on. That's really powerful for them. 
We want them to know that when they have conflict in relationships that you don't pull back, that you pull in. And how do you do that in a, in a way that nurtures and cleanses and builds? And there's a misconception that anger is harmful in a marriage. Anger, from all research, has shown that it does not predict that anything bad is going to happen to your marriage. Um, because if you had a relationship where all you had were happy feelings, that would be nice for maybe a week, right? Because a relationship has to have a variety of emotions in order for it to not be superficial. Um, but it's a problem when you have anger and you blend it with those four horsemen. Um, that's when it becomes a different story. When you add anger with contempt or criticism or defensiveness, that's when there can be some really negative consequences. You know, the Bible talks, in your anger, sin not. I'm in premarital counseling. One of our first major goals is to try to identify what are the key strengths in our relationship and what are our key work areas. Because why would we want to identify work areas from the get-go, right? Because what we know is that everybody, every relationship is going to have a set of issues. And these issues are going to be perpetual. Isn't that exciting? You're going to have them for the rest of your life. Because if you eavesdropped on a newlywed couple, you're going to hear um, elements of a conflict or argument that you're going to hear 20, 30, 40, 50 years down the road. So the job in premarital counseling is helping them identify, are these a set of issues that you want to deal with for the, for the long haul? Because what we know is that there's about 31% of our issues that are solvable, but, the, but almost 70% of our issues are what we call perpetual issues. Those are those recurring issues that we're going to have over and over and over again. And so, um, yeah, I mean, the good news of it. So what are some of your perpetual issues? You know, one of our issues that's a little easier, not as painful of, of some of our other ones, is has, has to do with leisure activities. You know, Ross likes physical, intense activity. And he likes war documentaries and movies. I do not like any of those. <laughs> and um, um, I, I like, you know, long walks. I like, you know, kayaking. I like books. And nerdy conversations. And so it has been, um, how do we figure out how to reconnect has been a painful problem. It, we're different. We're not going to resolve this one and have a specific solution. We're going to have to consistently navigate this way in a, a way that doesn't harm each, each other in that process. And so these perpetual issues can get gridlocked. How do you know when you have a gridlocked issue? I think there was a cartoon or a comic that had it. Did it? Is it in there? Did you fruit? Yeah. Oh, yeah, it is. I love this one. Apparently, I have done something to upset you. It's like, yeah, you know, that would be like, you know, how long does it take you to get the clue that I'm really ticked off? You know, we'll put some barbed wire in the bed. Um, but gridlock is when you get stuck and there's just no dialoguing about it. The other person is feeling rejected because you are communicating like, what is your problem? Um, you know, how, you know, what is that? You're going over and over the same kind of conversation. You're, you're spinning your wheels. And that's your clue. You know an issue is gridlocked when the other person feels rejected. You don't feel like they're on your side. And emotionally, people can become more and more disengaged. So then the issue is if we can't solve this issue, then what are we supposed to do? We're learning how to navigate this in a healthy way, in a positive way, where we feel like we're on the same team. Um, there's some, learning how to have dialogue is a little bit like irritable bowel syndrome. And I, I know love, that's I love this. It's always me and my family that does the potty humor, and she's got it all in this yeah. message. Yeah, okay. 
But what do you have when you have IBS, right? You know that there are certain irritants that are going to cause problems. So you learn how to, you're going to have them. You're going to know how to stay away from them. You're going to know how to make yourself feel better. Conflict is going to happen in marriage. So what are those chronic irritants, right? And what are those flaws? What are those sins that you have, your partner have, that are just going to happen? How do we do it in a more positive way? Because with conflict, when it's gridlocked, it's like two closed fists. And your job, when you feel like you're getting entrenched, is like, how can I open myself up? Even when they might feel closed, how can I open myself up? And it's through asking questions and learning how to pull in. And we're going to give some tips on how to do that. Um, because it's not, even though it might feel hopeless, there is a way of, of walking through this that can make you feel like you like each other again. Because like with our issue of leisure activities, sometimes what it pulls out is a deeper issue of how we feel loved, right? You know, to me, would I feel loved when Ross, you know, has listens or he has ideas. I don't want to feel like I have to carry the weight of connecting. And so how can we um, address those needs more specifically? So some quick tips that we've learned over the years that have helped us and other people and how to communicate and deal with conflict, how to clean and cleanse each other and nourish and build each other up. I wish we practiced them better, but here are some, some tips. The number one would be watch your startup. Research shows that 96% of the time, the way you start a discussion predicts the way it will end. I mean, this was even, for me yesterday, I was like really frustrated with um, somebody other than Ross, actually. <laughs> um, and, and I was just like, I was wanting to yell and vent, right? And I was just like, nope. You know, watch my startup, because if it's a harsh startup, that's how I'm going to end this conversation. So holding back that desire to want to vent, and how do I really want this to, what's the outcome? So a softened startup, what does that look like? Rather than saying, gosh, you are so cold to me, a softened alternative could be, I felt ignored, I felt hurt when you stayed up late watching TV and you didn't come to bed. Rather than saying, you are a workaholic, a softened alternative could be, could we talk about the balance that we have between work and family? Think before you speak. Um, conflict is not all about venting. Venting is important, but maybe you need to go have some time alone to yourself and vent before you talk. Number two, have a positive perspective. You want your partner to feel like that you're their ally, that you're on their side, that you're in this together. In the lobby, out the front doors, and then as you go out the the front doors to leave the building. We had um, we have a handout that looks like this. There's two exercises on it, and the first exercise is called an I value exercise, and it has a list of things that you might value about your spouse, like they're a good parent or they're assertive or they're playful, and just to I take some time to identify some positive things that you have about your partner. Um, you could do it with your kids or other people, because what we know is that. Um, for every negative, we have to at least say and affirm five positives about someone else for there to feel like there's a good, positive um, connection happening. So it's important to learn how to tell our spouse the things that we value about them. Where are we getting that glimpse of that mountain of who God created them to be? How do you turn toward them? Um, and also, remember from a learning perspective, we learn best, or we remember best in the state of mood that we're in. That being like, if you um, are in a negative mood, you can remember negative things. If you're in a good mood, it's easier to remember good things, right? So what happens when you're in a conflict? You can't remember why you ever married them, right? It's like, I know I loved you yesterday, but today I just can't stand anything about you. I don't even like the way you eat or anything, right? 
Because when you're in a negative, it's hard to remember those positives. It reminds me of Gary, um, an example, Gary Smalley. And if any of you remember him, he was a Christian relationship guy from the 80s and 90s. But he, his adult son was home, and his parents had had a big argument. And um, Gary Smalley, he left and went into a study. And later, his son followed him, and he saw that his dad was reading from a, a paper. And he did, he's like, Dad, what you doing? And even in his anger, he had chosen to go into a study, and he had written a list of a hundred things that he loved about his wife. And he knew that it was really important for him to be able to flip from that negative mindset of that conflict to remember, like, who is this person? Why am I committed to? Um, I haven't written a list of a hundred things, so I'll, I'll work on that later. I think but she has two. Yeah, two? I have probably Maybe three. more than two. I have more than two. Don't you worry. Um, but so helping yourself get into a positive um, mindset. And as a way to get into the third tip, let me ask you a question. When, how do you approach negative emotion? And when I talk about negative emotion, I don't mean like anger or those things are not negative per se, because they're just part of life, but we don't want to have them, right? We don't want to be lonely. We don't want to be, you know, sad or irritated or frustrated. But when you approach negative emotions, what do you like to do? Do you like to solve that problem and get the negative emotion to go away as soon as possible? So your approach is negative emotion, let's give some advice and problem solve. Or when you hear negative emotion, do you like to explore that feeling? Do you want to try to understand the other other person? So your approach is negative emotion, let's understanding is key. So how many, just raise your hands, how many of you, like, when it comes to negative emotion, you your approach is, I want to problem solve? How many problem solvers do we have? Okay, so how many for you then, when you have negative emotion, I want to understand? I want to then. Oh, let's get a little more. Okay, good, good, okay. <laughs> good, good. Well, the thing is, when this comes to the third tip, in order to honor both of those approaches, our rule is understand before you give advice or problem solving. I mean, that's really hard for some people because it's like really clear, like this is what you need to do, pull out of it. But make efforts to understand before problem solving. And the thing with trying to understand somebody, we can sometimes get the content of why they're upset or what's going on, but why do we want to pull into those feelings? Because that pulls on their subjective reality. You know, when any of us goes into a situation, there's the objective thing that actually happened, and then both of us have a subjective reality, what it happened in my opinion. And so when you are pulling into that feeling as well as the content, when you're listening to someone, you help understand what their world is like with their subjective reality and when we're talking about like perpetual issues particularly it doesn't really matter who's right or wrong now that could frustrate some people um, because you know we think that if we could just get to a place where we understood if they understood what they did wrong because how many of you have ever said um <clears throat> how would you say it um you're this is how if you just did it right you know and you're trying to blame put blame like whose fault is it this is wrong this is the right way to do it it doesn't land you anywhere, does it? Have you ever found yourself going around and round on that, trying to figure out who's right, who's wrong? Because the problem with um, doing that approach is that you're not going to get to a place where somebody feels understood. Have you ever had a conversation where somebody goes on and on and on and on, and you're like, I've told you I understand you. But what they're telling you by going on and on and on is that they don't feel understood. And so the best gift that you can give in a relationship, one of the best gifts, is to take the time to listen. That you're trying not only to get that content of what's going on, but what is the feeling underneath. 
Because that's where they feel like, okay, you took enough time to try to care and give some attention to that. I think I might trust you with a little bit more. Maybe I can take a step back and look at some other options. Understanding is critical. Um, as I, I think, um, I love this other scripture from Proverbs 4, 7. It says, get wisdom, though it cost all you have, get understanding. And I love that for peace. Mm-hmm. It's really important to get that understanding. And number four would be timeouts are good for adults too. So what does that, what does it mean that scripture, you know, never let the sun go down while you're still angry? Does that mean that you have to stay up till 3 a.m. working on a conflict that you have? Or does it mean that God is saying, okay, I want you to deal with this in a timely manner. I don't want you to avoid it. Because when we know, when we're in the middle of a conflict, sometimes physiologically we are just revving up and we are really upset. Our heart rate's going up, our blood pressure is going up. Adrenaline is starting to kick through your body. And what we know when we're physiologically aroused in that way, you can't problem solve. You can't listen. You can't hear. So a better approach would be to take a time out and to, uh, to take some space because when you are revved up like that, you get in that flight fight mode or that, f- that fight mode where you're going to use the contempt and the defensiveness or you're going to flee, which is more of that passive withdrawing stonewalling thing. So take a break and that's good, but you want to make sure that you're going to get it back together. Maybe take a break for 20, 30 minutes, never longer than 24 hours. But when you take that break, watch your thoughts. Because I don't know about you, sometimes if I take a break, I start revving myself up like, oh my gosh, and I remember this and this and this. And, you know, I start coming up with my whole judge defensive approach. So watch what you're doing in your timeouts. Um, what are you saying to yourself and trying to, to think again, what is, the pip, what is the purpose of this conversation? Where do I want to go with this? What is my heart toward them? Number five, we've already spent a little bit of time on, but just make sure you're identifying those solvable issues versus your perpetual issues. Um, I think you forgot to put this I one in. I think I didn't get five in there. Oh, okay. Well, that's it. So identify your perpetual and perpetual issues and learning how to navigate those respect and kindness. On the back side of the handout that's out there is an issues that go round and round. And it gives you an idea of identifying what might be some potential uh, perpetual issues that we might have and how you can think through, like, how could we have a better discussion about that? So the goal then with perpetual issues is what? We're not trying to figure out how to solve it. We're trying to figure out how can we have a positive conversation around this issue. And finally, the last tip would be remember the big picture. God is using your relationship to bring out a better and more true you. Be open to change. Remember the train marriage has come on your bridge and it's supposed to reveal those flaws. Be open to growing and becoming more of who God called you to be. I recently heard a story uh, of another couple named Rob and Jessica that reminded me of uh, dozens of couples I've known. Their issues are different but I think they're universal. I think everybody who gets together in a marriage or everybody who works together in a boss relationship or friendship has issues that they bring to the table that are going to cause, cause conflict. And uh, I think the story of Rob and Jessica just illustrates that really well. Uh, Rob was a guy who all of his life had few friends. 
He had a really, the reason he had a difficulty with that is because he had a hard time putting himself in other people's shoes and showing any kind of empathy. And often he was one of these guys that was surprised when people would give him a negative reaction to his bluntness. He was going, I just told the truth. Why would you, you know, I mean, that, you know, why would you have a problem with that? And, and even in this, in his particular story, uh, I'm not sure this fourth grade uh, school counselor was great, but the fourth grade school counselor sat down with his parents one time and says, I think he might be a mild sociopath because of his inability to understand the feelings of other people and sympathetically imagine how what he does makes them feel. Now this call, for Rob, this, this uh, character flaw followed him for years uh, and created problems for years. He just couldn't see it. I mean, he had, he had a lot of acquaintances, but very few of them became friendships. And uh, in his first job out, outings, he regularly ran into problems with his missteps causing difficulty with his bosses or with the people he was working with. And he even lost one job over it. And then comes along Jessica, the princess in shining armor on the white horse that's got to flip that around. And by the second date... By the second date, they were deep into the in-love experience. Everything was firing. It was all wonderful. They were absolutely... She was just she was just in love with his brilliant ability to be a conversationalist, and he was great at having a conversation and talking about things. And, and he was just enamored by her ability to be an assertive, strong person who didn't easily get her feelings hurt. And several times, even in their first early dating, the, his humor, as it often did, uh, strayed over into the realm of hurtful and, ins, and, and insulting. And, and she just simply uh, didn't run away like other people did, didn't get angry with him, just told him off and put him in his place, and they kept right on going. And he just liked that. He thought it was really great. Nobody had ever done that for him before. And so a few months later, they got married. Right? And then the months went by. And Rob's insensitive humor and semi-abusive remarks began to get worse and take their toll because that's what happens, right? I mean, courtship, we're putting our best foot forward, but when we live together, eventually your normal instincts start to take over a little bit more and they just become more real and we no longer catch ourselves. And soon, for Jessica, the problem of Rob's uh, character uh, began to become really, really ugly and horrible because she all of a sudden realized it's going to be very hard for us as a couple to ever have any friends because of the way he alienates people. And it, it just really was difficult for her when she started to realize she was pretty thick-skinned and could handle this, but most people couldn't. And it just was going to damage friendships. And she became deeply disillusioned. A year into their marriage, she was already beginning to fantasize about being single again and wanting to be out on her own again. And when Rob realized that, it just made him go off the edge in terms of fear. And, and they went into counseling. And it took a number of weeks of counseling for them to even get to their first breakthrough. And their first breakthrough, as they, as they told the story, was this, that their first breakthrough was, was that all of a sudden they began to realize that they were designed to be together. The only way Rob was ever going to become the person he was going to become that God intended him to be was to have a strong woman in his life who could calmly call him on the carpet when he needed to be, but stay and be there and constantly say to him with, with just a level-headedness, that hurt me and I'm going to tell you exactly how it felt until you learn how your words hurt people. And I'm not going to clam up. I'm not going to withdraw. And I'm not going to attack. 
I'm just going to be like Jesus did, accepting you in love, but not allowing your sin to just go on and destroy destroy you and destroy us. And Rob had never had anybody love him like that. Everybody had either given up or withdrawn when they faced his bluntness and his lack of sensitivity. But here was someone who calmly, candidly would tell him what was going on. And the most transforming part of it for him was the fact that the person who was telling him the truth was the person he loved the most in the entire world. And Jessica herself also discovered that God had brought Rob into her life because she had, lived, she had always been this strong, independent person, never wanted to rely on anybody, and she wouldn't let anybody hurt her. And she slowly began to realize that, uh, that she was this fiercely independent spirit, that every time somebody hurt her or betrayed her trust too much, she had just left. But now she's in this relationship where she wanted to live up to her vows, and she couldn't just run. And she all of a sudden realized her own issues and how Rob got a design to call out that graciousness and that gentleness in her. And as they told the story, uh, three years later, uh, Jessica's parents noticed a gentleness and graciousness in her towards the weakness and failings of others like they'd never seen. And they noticed in Rob that a kindness that they never thought possible. You see, marriage, the way God intended it, is for us to love each other in a way that we see these glimpses of who they can be and we're honest enough, we're truthful enough, we don't shy away from the difficult conversations, but we learn to have them in a way that lovingly brings out the best in the other. And that's, that's what God's invitation is to us today. If you're here and you're, you've been afraid of conflict or you've seen yourself in some of that stonewalling or you've seen yourself falling prey to some of that criticism or condemnation, and God wants to touch that area of you right now. Can we just pray and invite the Holy Spirit to do that? Lord, we just ask that you would come. And Lord, those areas that we've been turning away from our spouse to protect ourselves, those areas that have been laced with uh, the blood of the woundedness that we feel, and the anger, uncontrolled, misdirected. Lord, I ask that you'd come and give us hope that we can re-engage, that we can turn toward one another, that we can begin to have conversations again. Holy Spirit, just come and bring to mind those areas right now. Just ask God, what's the one area that you would love me to surrender to you? and turn towards my spouse in. If you're not married, think of the most difficult relationship and ask God the same question. Lord, thank you for your presence with us. Lord, would, you, would your spirit just continue to come and take those places of our hearts that are hardened or that feel really heavy where we, where we maybe even physically almost feel the heaviness on our heart of even when we think about hoping Lord it just seems too much when we think about engaging in that area it just seems too scary or too fruitless Lord would you come now even as we worship and meet us in that area
In Jesus' name. That song pretty well says it. He's calling us to a deeper place in our marriage, and it's not necessarily going to be easy. And some of you are here today, and uh, you don't have a lot of hope for some of the issues. Uh, maybe you're not at the point of thinking about divorce yet. Maybe you are. But you don't have a lot of hope for a few of the issues. And there's a scripture that Wendy reminded me of in first service that I wanted to share. The, the scripture is this, and it's a, a scripture that's been brought a lot of hope to my life. That God says to us, a bruised reed I will not break. You may feel like a bruised reed right now. And God's not going to break you. And what God's calling you to go deeper in in your marriage in terms of love, he's not going to let your marriage break you either if you learn to follow him and make these commitments to him and make these commitments to your relationships. He's going to heal you. He's going to bring that. It may not feel like that to you right now, but he's going to do it. If you're here today and you you're, you would say, yeah, that describes me. I've got some hard areas that I'm, I'm afraid to even look at those areas. I've got some significant pain, and I've been thinking about wondering if our marriage is going to survive. I want you to not leave today without praying with someone. You can grab Wendy or I. You can grab Tom and Deanna up here or somebody up here as well to pray with or Joe or any of the elders or staff or just a friend next to you. And allow the Holy Spirit to begin to come and touch you in that area. He's got to come and start to meet that need for it to be safe for you to even come out of that shell and deal with it. And that's what he wants to do for you today. we got to receive our offering, and i got a couple announcements we need to make. Ushers, go ahead and come on up. Lord, we're, we're so grateful for your presence with us. We're so grateful that you have a grand plan for beautiful marriages and for us in our marriages to discover how good you've really intended us to be in life. All the good and the beauty you created us for. Lord, I pray that now, even as we give, even of finances, Lord, that you would allow us to experience that same generosity of pursuit that you have for us towards our spouse, towards this offering, towards the people of our community. That you would open our hearts wide to love well and to be loved well. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at gotoquest.org.